And before we start, let's, let's pray once again. Lord God, we are so thankful for all that you provide for us and all that you've given us. And as we celebrate this season, Lord, the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, in his first advent, as John had mentioned, came, Lord, to give us peace and reconciliation most of all with yourself. And we thank you for that. I pray this morning as we study your word, we will begin to understand who the Lord Jesus Christ is even more than when we came in this morning. That we would leave this place desiring to know him more, desiring to serve him more and worship him more because of who he is, Lord God. We ask that your Holy Spirit would show us and reveal us these things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Isaiah chapter 9, we're just going to look at verse 6. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 7, and I may just read those anyways so that we get a, the context of what we're going through. But last week, we looked at the glory that was coming to the nation Israel, which is the Messiah. And this week, and next week, we're going to look at what the Messiah will be like, what his character will be, and what his reign will consist of. You see, Isaiah ascribes four names or titles to the Messiah that describe his character for us, and that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at two of them today and two of them next week. Four names. They're going to describe his character, uh, and will also give us an idea, as I mentioned, how he will rule once he comes. And so I think I am going to read verses 1 through 7 just for the context, and if you were here last week, bear with me, but I... I'm going to repeat some things here. What is going on at the time? The nation Israel was being taken captivity by the Assyrians. And this was a warning to the southern king Ahaz about what was going to take place in the future. A promise of the coming Messiah. And this is a prophecy that Isaiah spoke to Ahaz. He says, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulon in the land of Nephtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness and they will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian, for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult. A cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So there's the context. There's the great prophecy that we've all probably real familiar with, verse 6. And that's what we're going to focus in on this morning. We're going to look at two names, Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God. 
You see, the coming glory of Christmas is the Messiah. This is what was prophesied to Ahaz and all the nation of Israel, this coming ruler. And in his first advent, meaning his first coming, what is he going to be like? And as I said, we're going to look at two names, and next week we'll look at the other two. So let's look at these together. Again, read verse 6 again just, for you, just so you can understand where we're going. It says, for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called, here's the first name, Wonderful Counselor, and the second name, Mighty God. So what will this be like? So before we get into the names, Isaiah is prophesying to the nation Israel that there is a child coming, one to be born to the nation Israel. That's why he says to us. A child will be born, a son will be given to us, and what's going to happen? The government will rest on his shoulders. The rule and dominion of Israel will be his. This coming Messiah will be responsible and have the burden of ruling the nation Israel. This is the prophecy. This applies to Jesus Christ. As we mentioned last week, and I'm going to show you throughout today, we're going to dip into the Gospels of a lot this morning, so keep your fingers in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, just right there. So the rule and dominion of Israel will be the Messiahs, according to this prophecy. Turn with me now and look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. This is a prophecy that the scribes went to look up when the wise men came to find out where is the king of the Jews. They understood this. They somehow maybe had caught wind of the prophecy of Isaiah or the star that they were following was something that they were aware of, obviously. But in Matthew chapter 2, look how Jesus fulfills this very thing that he's going to have the rule and dominion of Israel. So in chapter 2 of Matthew, it says this. Now, after Jesus was born, here's the child that was born, in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? They recognized this child was already king of the Jews. It didn't say born to be king of the Jews. It says born king of the Jews. It says, For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled And all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler. Again, the ruler, the government, is going to be on his shoulders. Who will shepherd my people Israel? Again, other prophets knew that this Messiah that was coming was going to rule. He was going to be the leader of all of Israel. This prophecy tells us this. The wise men knew the boy was to be king, and the chief priest told Herod the boy was to be the ruler of Israel. This child, and that's why Herod was so worried about losing his kingdom, because he is the current king. 
And he's being told, no, there's a king born already, king of the Jews. So the rule and dominion was going to be Jesus. And Jesus himself said this in Matthew 28, at the very end of his, of his life before he ascended into heaven. You remember what he told his disciples as he left? Again, signifying all rule and dominion is his. In Matthew 28, verse 18, says this. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority, all dominion, all rule has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It was prophesied. Jesus demonstrated it throughout the Gospels. And at the end of his life, when he was to ascend into heaven, he says, All authority has been given to me on earth and in heaven. The rule and dominion of Israel was the Messiah's. And his rule will be exhibited by the two titles that we're going to look at now, or two names he was given. So going back to Isaiah, but keep your finger in Matthew. Isaiah 9, the two names. Again, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Wonderful Counselor, let's look at that, means he will execute the wisest counsel. That word, wonderful, in the Hebrew has these meanings. It's, it's a wonderful meaning. To be marvelous, to be surpassing, to be extraordinary, separated by distinguishing action. Don't those depict our Lord? To be surpassing, to be extraordinary. I like that. So that's what it means to be wonderful. Surpassing, extraordinary, marvelous. And what was to be those things? His counsel, his advice, his consultation, his purpose, his device or plan. So you could say it this way. He will rule his people with marvelous, surpassing, extraordinary advice, purpose, consultation, devising, and planning. That's the wonderful counselor. And as you think about this, that means the Messiah will give the best counsel for each situation. There will be no, let's try that again. If you think about that. There's no plan B with our Lord. He knows what is best. He has a plan. We may not always know it or understand it, but it's not a surprise to him. It's a, it's a surprise to us. I like that. There's no, let's just see how it works, and then we'll go from there. Now, that's how I operate. The, thankfully, the Lord doesn't operate like that. Not only that, this wonderful counselor that's coming to rule the government, wouldn't that be awesome to have a wonderful counselor to rule our government? That there's no, hey, let's try and see how this works. Let's take a poll and see what everybody thinks before we make a decision. No, the council is going to be extraordinary. It's going to be surpassing anything. And isn't that what was said about Jesus as he spoke? You see, the Messiah that was coming, that has came, will speak as nobody has ever spoken. This is what Isaiah is saying. He's going to be extraordinary, wonderful. The things that he says nobody has ever said before. And this is proven over and over through the gospel. Let's just look at a few accounts. So turn with me to Matthew again, if you're not convinced of this yet. Because his wonderful counsel was acknowledged 
almost every time after or during his teaching and after his teaching, it was Jesus himself who said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, in the famous uh, Beatitude section, or Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28, and he did this a number of times, but just in this one instance I want to point it out, he says this, let me get to Matthew, Matthew, 20, or Matthew 5, verse 27, he says this, you have heard that it is said, and when he said that, look, before I continue, he's not saying, well, the Old Testament says this, but I say that. He's addressing the teaching that Israel had been receiving up to that time by the scribes, by the Pharisees. So he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Look at the very next line. But I say, that's that authority, that's that wonderful counsel. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust in her, for, with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And over again in the teachings of Jesus throughout the section, he will say, but I say, because he's speaking with authority. His wonderful counsel is being displayed. And then turn with me to uh, Mark chapter 1, looking at verse 21. I like this as well. Mark 21. When Jesus taught, it says, Mark 1, verse 21, they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he, meaning Jesus, entered the synagogue and began to teach, began to teach, and look at what it says in verse 22, they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Again, I think this accurately fulfills the prophecy that we're looking at this morning in Isaiah chapter 9. They recognized that he was different than everybody else. He was extraordinary, surpassing the knowledge of the day. And I wish I would have looked up some statistics about the sayings of Jesus, how much they've crept into our own everyday common language, things that we talk about. You know, the, uh, the Good Samaritan, you know, or light, uh, the, the light on the hill. All those things, those were come from Jesus Christ. Or the truth will set you free. How many times have you heard that misquoted? Jesus' teachings are extraordinary and surpassing all knowledge. And many generations. And then one last verse, turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 40, in regards to this wonderful counsel of Jesus. Here, all of Israel was amazed by his teachings. John, chapter 7, verse 40, it says this, Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, these words that Jesus had spoke, look at what they said, this certainly is a prophet, Christ Excuse me, others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. And some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, 
Why did you not bring him? They were supposed to go and get Jesus and bring him back. The officers answered, Never has a man spoken this way, or the way this man speaks. I love that. Never has a man spoken like this. They've never heard someone speak like this before. There's something definitely different about this guy, so much so that the crowds are going, this is a Christ, he's a prophet. They all recognized Jesus' wisdom in the words that he spoke and the deeds that he did. He truly fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 9, 6, wonderful counselor. We can go through just a study of this over and over to this morning to bear truth to that and witness to that. So the rule of the child will be a wonderful counselor is who he will be. Let's go back to our text in Isaiah 9 and look at the second description of the, wonder, of the child that is to come, the Messiah, the, whose shoulders will bear the government of Israel. He will be called a wonderful counselor and mighty God. He will be the victorious God is a short way of saying this. That word mighty means powerful and strong. It is a word used to speak of warriors or hunters of heroes who are successful. And it can even be translated as champion. All that is packed in that meaning of mighty. The mighty God is a warrior, a hero, a champion. And that word God is the word El in Hebrew, and it can be used as speaking of other deities, but is specifically used of God Almighty in this context. So the mighty God, this Messiah, will be a powerful and strong champion, a warrior, and a hero. He will be the Almighty God. The God above all other gods is what Isaiah is trying to stress in this text. And he's going, he has to be mighty because he has to fulfill all the prophecy that we read this morning in verses 2 through 5. He has to give light to all those in darkness. He has to multiply the nation. He has to increase their gladness by His coming. And He has to deliver them from the oppression and yoke, that the uh, yoke of bondage that they suffer in. And we'll talk about that more in a couple of weeks as well, of how Christ did that how he continues to do that as well. So this mighty God who will accomplish all these things prophesied in Isaiah 2 through 5 is declared powerful even by Zacharias in Luke chapter 1. Turn there with me. This is an example of how he fulfills this at his first coming, his first advent. Zacharias, who is the father of John the Baptist, proclaims this in Luke chapter 1. Look at verse 67. We'll read through to 6 to 75. Look at the things that he says about the coming Messiah. And his father, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished because he's the mighty God, he's the great and powerful uh, hero, warrior. He has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. This is one of the victories that the Messiah will accomplish, redemption for his people. 
He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This is his prophecy about the Messiah that was to come. He recognized this is the prophecy, or this is the son, the child, who's going to fulfill all those prophecies that God gave to the prophets of old. He recognizes this is the true mighty God who would deliver us from our enemies. Jesus himself, and we read this last week, but it's worth reading again. Jesus himself proclaimed the victories at his first advent. Those things that he would accomplish. Turn with me a few chapters to Luke chapter 4, verse 18. This is significant because we look at this, and I mentioned this briefly last week, how the nation of Israel today does not see Jesus as the true Messiah because he didn't free them, even in the first century, from the Romans. They still were serving Rome. They were still under that oppression. And like I said, in a few weeks we're going to look at what exactly that means and how Jesus accomplished this. But Jesus himself says that he came the first time to accomplish this. So he either did accomplish it, and he's the true Messiah, or he didn't, and there's another Messiah to come. Those are your two options. You don't have another one. So Luke chapter 4, verse 18, says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is Jesus taking the scroll of Isaiah and reading it, this section from the scroll. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to do what? Because he appointed me to preach The gospel to the poor, that's what he came to do. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. So he's saying, I'm going to release the captives. I'm going to proclaim release to the captives. And recover and recovery of sight to the blind to set those, set free those who are oppressed. He's saying that's what he came to do. And so he either accomplished it or he didn't. And we say he did. So to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is making a bold proclamation, saying, I am the Messiah. I am he who the prophets prophesied about, and I'm going to do these things. So Jesus himself proclaims the victories that he was going to accomplish at his first advent. And I want to give you another one. The ultimate defeat or the ultimate victory that Jesus won was the defeat of Satan. And you might be saying, well, Satan's still roaming around, right? The Bible even says he's roaming around like a lion looking whom he may devour. But there is a sense in which Satan was defeated. Sorry. Let's look at just two verses here. John chapter 12, verse 31. We'll take the words of Jesus himself. So you could argue with me about it, but you can't argue about it with Jesus. 
John 12, verse 31. In prophesying about his death, he says this. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, this is verse 30, but for yours. He says, now, now when? when now means now, now, now back for a century. Judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. First century, he's saying Satan is cast out in some sense. Obviously, he's still roaming around, but there is a sense in which Satan was defeated, and we would all agree to that. We worship God for that reason. And I want to show you one more in Hebrews chapter 2. The women that are going through Hebrews will probably remember this. You guys are past chapter 2, right? Women's study? Okay. Romans chapter, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. This is a really good one. Again, talking about the ultimate defeat of Satan. He says, therefore, the writer of Hebrews says, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise also partook of the same, meaning he became flesh and blood, that through death he might render powerless, you see that, render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Again, just two verses showing in some sense Satan was defeated, cast out, rendered powerless at the first advent. And he will be totally cast out at the second advent when Christ returns. So this mighty God defeated Satan. The ultimate victory. He defeated Satan. Cast him out. No longer to have power over God's people. So again, looking back at the coming Savior who is to come, the coming Messiah, he's going to be, number one, a wonderful counselor. Secondly, he's going to be the mighty God, the ultimate victor, the hero, the champion. This is the God whom we serve. And so I'll close with this, with a few points, just a few questions of application for each and every one of us. And the question is this, will you receive this ruler? The wonderful counselor, the mighty God. So the question is this, does Jesus have rule and dominion of your life? Think about that. This is for believer and non-believer like, does Jesus have the ultimate rule and dominion of your life that he's looking for? I like what uh, he says in Matthew chapter 11. Turn there with me. Matthew 11, verse 28. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight, Jesus says this. Come to me. All, this is after his teachings. He says, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is ultimate rule and dominion in your life. Have you taken that yoke that Jesus offers and sat it upon your shoulders? 
Or are you still carrying around your own, you know, your own junk, for lack of a better word? Or your own, I'm trying to get right with God before I fully give my life to Him. Jesus says, no, man, take my yoke. Completely allow my rule and dominion to be upon you because it is easy. And it is rest. If we're not resting in the Lord, then we're struggling for a bunch of different reasons. So again, let me ask you, does Jesus have complete rule and dominion of your life? And again, even as believers, we might say, well, I, I said a prayer and, and uh, I was baptized. But you, have you truly taken that yoke? Are you truly taking his yoke upon you? Full submission. Are you still holding on to some things? Secondly, this is referring to the wonderful counselor. Do you receive his wise counsel? Do you really listen to the words of Jesus and put them into practice? Look back in uh, Matthew chapter 7. Starting in verse 24, I like this. And this can be a... uh, an admonishment to each and every one of us, even for this morning's message. Anytime you hear a message, anytime you read God's word and he gives you counsel, do you really receive it? Jesus says this after giving some counsel. He's therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. So it's not just hearing them. You have to act on them. You have to do something. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. That's, I wish we could just, I should have just taught on this section. <laughs> God gives us counsel, is what he's saying. And if we act on it, then when hard times come, We're going to be able to stand. We're going to be able to find rest and peace in the midst of that. It's going to beat on us. And it's going to blow on you. And it's even going to slam against you. right? We could all probably, yeah, it does slam against us. Hard times come. But if you have Christ's rule and dominion in your life, if you're taking his counsel on a daily basis, not just when hard times come, then you'll be able to stand. The opposite, unfortunately, is true, though, as well. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. That's true, too. When we don't listen to the Lord, we don't take his wise counsel, his wonderful counsel, and we do things the way we want to do them, then don't be surprised when we fall, and great will it be. But the great promise is that, you know what, the Lord's still there with you. He's going to help you get up. He's going to help you build that house again. Proverbs tells us that a righteous man falls seven times and gets back up every time. Because we've all fallen. We've all refused the counsel of the Lord. Some of you may be in the midst of it right now. The rain is beating on your house, slamming against the walls. 
But again, let me encourage you, if you've built your house on the rock, you, you won't fall. Your house will not fall. It may feel like it is. You may want to. But ultimately, because of what Christ has done, you will not So will you receive his rule? Will you allow Jesus to have rule and dominion over life? Do you receive his wise counsel? And do you know that God has already been victorious for you? Do you understand that? He's already victorious. It's a done deal. Colossians reminds us of that. In Colossians chapter 2, another section I, I just really, I really love. Colossians 2, chapter, or verse 13, we're going to read through verses 21 because it's really relevant to what we're talking about this morning. It says this, it's talking about our standing in Christ. He says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us All our transgressions. Who did it? He did it. He did it all. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile towards us, and he had taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So you have this laundry list of sins against you, penalties against you, Debts you have to pay to God because you've sinned against him. And he takes it and nails it to the cross and forgives you of it. And it says, verse 15, and this goes back to his defeat of the devil. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities and he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. When did he do that? On the cross. He defeated Satan. And he says, therefore, because of what I have done, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. So what he's saying is here is you don't need to drink or not drink something to be saved or celebrate this festival or go to church on this day or celebrate uh, any kind of religious holiday or ceremony to be righteous before God. It's already done. If you want to worship the Lord every day, fine. If you want to worship and go to church on Saturday or Friday or whatever day, that's fine, he's saying. Those things don't make you right with God. The victory's already won. He says, let no one, because there were people within the church, putting this burden on them. Have you felt that before? Man, you need to wear a you know, buttoned-up shirt. You women, you, can't wear dre- you have to wear dresses to church. That makes you saved. You need to have more lighting, less lighting. You need to have just hymnal singing. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement in the worship of angels, taking his stand in visions as he has seen, inflated without cause by fleshly mind, This reminds you of the denominations that say, unless you're speaking in tongues, you're not saved. That's not what what saves you. Right? That's inflating themselves. They're better than you. They have the Spirit of God more than you. 
and not holding fast to the head from with the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from Christ. So the victory, he's saying, is not in what you do. You get these great visions. He's saying, no, if you have died with Christ, verse 20, to the elementary principles of this world, why, as if you are living in the world, do you submit to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? That's his question. Christ has already been victorious. There's nothing else you can do to add to that. He's already won. He is the mighty God, the hero, the champion that has won your salvation already. Submit to him. Take this yoke of his, and it'll be easy and light. I hope, you, I hope that helps you. I hope that's freeing to you this morning. Do you know that God has already been victorious for you in securing your righteousness? And not only that, in every situation of your life, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we've taught on this extensively, but I want to read it once more. Because even in the midst of all that you're going through, even when you mess up, if you're his child, this promise is true for you. You have victory. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn, the firstborn among brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. God is going to complete our sanctification until the day of the return of Jesus Christ at his second advent. In every situation, God has been victorious already. The problem is, is that in every situation, we want it to happen when? Now. We, can, we need to be patient. That's the hardest part. You're like, oh, man, I was with you, Robert, until you said that. I got to be patient. Dang it. In every situation, and I just want to share these last two verses with you, two examples from the Old Testament where God was going to win the salvation for his people and his advice to them was be patient in the midst of it. Let's go first to um, Exodus 14. Exodus 14, verses 13 through 14. This is when Israel was running away from Pharaoh and they were going to cross the Red Sea. Exodus 14, 13, he says this. But Moses said to the people... Do not fear. And look what he tells them to do. Stand by. So stand there and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians who you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. And verse 14, the Lord will fight for you while you do what? Keep fighting for yourself. Silent. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Why? Because it is the Lord who's going to be victorious, not you. So Israel just sitting there on the shore like, okay, let's see this. how we're going to cross this river. Here comes Pharaoh and the mighty armies back there. And Moses is saying, just stand here. Shouldn't we like get ready to fight? 
No, he says, stand and be silent. Isn't that the hardest thing to do when hard times are going? Silent. No, I want to do something. I have a plan. I have friends that can help me out. I can, uh, you know, run to the church and, and they'll help me out. And they will. But there's a time where we need to stand and be silent. Stop talking, Robert. I'm trying to talk to you, the Lord's saying. You know, stop thinking about what you're going to do and let me tell you or give you insights. And the problem is, like, some people say, well, I am silent. The Lord's not saying anything. Well, maybe he wants you to be silent longer. I don't know. And then one last verse in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. I like this as well. And I'll probably read a little bit more. It's just so cool. So Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. He says this. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, because they were about to, they were in trouble and they were going to form alliance with Egypt. And this is what the Lord says to the prophet. He says, in repentance and rest, you will be saved. Repentance and rest. That's what you do. Repent and rest. In quietness and in trust is your strength. And here's all of us. But you are not willing. You won't do it. You won't rest. You won't sit still. You're not willing. And you said, and he's taking the part. This is what you're doing and said, No, for we will flee on horses. Therefore you flee, and you will ride on swift horses. Therefore those who pursue you shall be swift. One thousand will flee at the threat of one man. You will flee at the threat of five. So your plan is, I'm not going to sit here and rest. I'm going to go and do my thing because I have a plan. I'm going to escape it. And then look at what he says. I love this. He says, you will flee at the threat of five until you are left as a flag on a mountaintop and a signal on the hill. So you think you're escaping, but actually you're waving a big flag saying, I'm right here. Come get me. Because you didn't rest and trust in the Lord. I love that. He says, therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore, he, he waits on high to have compassion on you. Isn't that interesting? He tells you to wait, but you don't. And what does he do? He waits for you. I'll let you run. I'll let you do your own thing. You'll fall. I'll let you do that so that you learn to wait and rest. That's a hard lesson to learn, though. But each and every one of us could probably say, I've done that before. I've taken that hard lesson. So again, there's three questions. Does Jesus have rule and dominion of your life? Do you really receive his wise counsel? And do you know God has already been victorious for you? Before I pray, I want to give you an opportunity for each and every one of us to get right with the Lord. Maybe you're at that point as a believer. You know what? I truly haven't submitted every aspect of my life to him. And sometimes I'm running from him. I pray this morning you will make that decision to, to... Give him every part and aspect of your life. And maybe there's some this morning who've never done that at all. Never give Christ any part of their life. If you'd like to do that this morning, there's going to be some people in the back who'd love to pray with you and 
talk to you, explain to you what that means so that all these things can apply to you. Because the Messiah is here now. He wants to be your wonderful counselor. He wants to be your mighty God. And he secured victory for you already. Will you submit to him is the only question. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your promises and for your word. Lord, I pray this morning that each and every one of us, as we hear your word this morning, would be the wise man who listens and acts upon your word. For Lord, when the, the storms of life come and the wind blows against our, our life, we will be able to stand because we're built on the rock, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. I pray, Lord, that nobody would leave this room this morning without truly submitting their life to you and fully submitting it. Lord, that they can call you and experience you as wonderful counselor and mighty God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.